six classes. That's the plan. Um, last two classes, we went through some of the basic classical texts, the Gemara, the Zohar that the Altar is working off of, and we introduced the idea of two souls. And if you recall, that the idea of two souls, again, is, is not what I would say a classical Jewish idea. It's not an invention of the Altar It's found in the Kabbalah of the Arizal. Um, and if you recall, how did I explain, how I explain the soul? So if you think about a person, you think that we have a body, the other stuff we're going to call the soul, right? And that's the stuff we really care about, the value of the body in as much as it facilitate, facilitates the soul. And the idea of a good or evil inclination, classically is understood, the good inclination is getting you to try to do the stuff that's really good for you, and the evil inclination is trying to get you to do the stuff that's bad for you, although it never tells you that it's bad for you, or it's definitely not how it's phrased. But the idea of two souls is that really... Um, just like physically some things are good for one kind of organism, say animals, oxygen, and bad for other organisms, say plants, right, carbon dioxide. Um, if you have two souls, there's kind of, so to speak, two of you, and when one thrives, the other comes at the expense of the other. Right? And that's the idea. And again, you can find allusions to this in the Zohar, um, where the Zohar uses the expression body and soul, that the strength of the body is the weakness of the soul and vice versa. Um, and, and you'll find that, that language also in Chassidus, sometimes body and soul refer to the two souls, one soul being called the body because of its association with physicality. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on first the first 17 chapters. The first 17 chapters um, on the cheat sheets that I did give you are explaining how the obligation to serve Hashem in our heart is karev, is close, is accessible and attainable to us. Okay. So what I'm going to first do is I'm going to take the 17 chapters and I'm going to divide them into subgroups. Because I'm a big believer that chunking information and breaking it down is helpful. So if I give you 53 things to remember in order, it doesn't work very well. Um, but if I you know, give you one thing and I break that down into four things and then break those down, it works a little bit better. Okay. So we're going to have the first eight chapters. And the first eight chapters I'm going to call the introduction. This is where you're going to learn all of our key... Um, concepts. Okay? Then we're going to have chapters 9 through 12. 9 through 12, I've given it this very clever title, The War and Its Aftermath. I was very proud of that title. The what? The War and Its Aftermath. Or The War and Its Resolution. But I thought Aftermath sounded cooler. You could use Resolution if you want. Okay? And then at chapters 13... Through 17, we are going to call, these are the Benini chapters. Okay. So that means we really only have to remember three, three things here, right? There's the introductory information, the war and its aftermath, and then we have sections dealing, focusing in on the Benini. Okay. Now, the first eight chapters, okay, and I'm starting halfway through chapter one, because remember, the, fir- the first half of chapter one is just all that introductory stuff that we spent class and a half on, classical sources, okay? Which I'm not going to review right now. So the second half of chapter one starts by introducing our key concept of two souls, okay? And then focuses on the first soul. This is okay. chapter one? This is chapter one. So I'm gonna go on the first soul, okay? And we need to know three things about the first soul from chapter one. How many things? Three. 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 Number one, this soul 
stems from the klipa, which literally means the shell or the peel, also known as the sitra achra or the other side. Okay. So we've discussed this previously in Tanya classes, so I'm not going to dwell too much on it now. But klipa means that which covers over the truth of God, just like a shell or peel covers over the fruit within. And sitrachor means the other side or that which is not holy. Holy being something that, that reveals the truth of God. Okay, now, what is very important going forward is that from the perspective of Hasidus, and I'm emphasizing Hasidus, although to be fair, this idea has degrees to it, and you can find earlier versions of this in Kabbalah, and you can go all the way back to the Chumash in a certain sense. But from the point of view of Chassidus, the truth of Hashem is the absoluteness of Hashem, that He is the only thing that has any significance, value, or even existence. Okay? So the minute you ascribe significance or value or existence to anything other than Hashem Himself, you have moved from the side of holiness to the other side, from Kedusha to Klipa. Now, so this first soul, where does it stem from? Klipa. So that means what is this soul focusing on, prioritizing? How, what is its worldview? That Hashem is not the end all and be all of everything. Okay, that's all it means. And by the way, from a perspective of Kabbalah generally, and Chassidus especially, the terms good and evil get oriented around this. And generally in Judaism, we think of good and evil in much more um, you know, familiar terms. Okay, so now, the second thing we need to know about this first soul is that it is clothed in the body for the purpose of enlivening the body. In simple terms, the reason why you are a person and not a corpse, and there's two elements here I'm going to talk about in a second, is because of this first soul. So I said, the reason why you are a person and not a corpse is because of this soul. Now, is there a space in between being a person and being a corpse? Could you not be a person and also not be a corpse? Yeah, like a dog. A dog is not a person, and a dog is also not a corpse, right? In other words, there's two elements here. There's one is that the flesh actually is living in a biological sense. And the deeper idea is that the quality of its life is what we would call human life, what everything that entails, from the most debased aspects of human life to the most loftiest aspects of human life. Okay? okay. Now, um, the central, most important part of human life is what? Sorry. I forget to turn this off. What's the most central part of human life? I'll give you a hint. I already said it. No. Life? Which life? The human life. That's right. And guess what the human life is not? Hashem. So by definition, something which prioritizes human life as the central thing on which everything else is oriented around is going to be Klipa and Sitrachra. That should make a kind of logic set, logical sense to it. And this is why, again, Jewish mysticism should not be reduced to basic ethics because prioritizing human life is not an ethical evil. It may be a mystical evil, but it's not an ethical evil. That assumes that the definition of human life precludes the absolute truth of Hashem. Meaning, you're, you're assuming definitions. I'm assuming a lot because I'm doing an overview class. All of this I could do in great detail. 
Um, but if I did that, what would happen? Would we get through 53 chapters in six classes? No. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to make it intuitive and structured, and I'm sacrificing my, my general, gen, um, general rigor because you can't have everything at once. Okay. You can always follow up the questions and answers on anything that bothers you about the specific formulation. Okay. The third thing is that this first soul of a Jew always contains elements which are ethically good, not only elements which are ethically bad. So it is both the source of all of our negative traits, but also the source of our ethically good traits. What are our ethically good traits? Kindness and compassion. Okay? In other words, the human tendency to be arrogant, self-absorbed, and lazy is a natural manifestation of the soul, but also the human tendency to be compassionate and kind is a natural manifestation of the soul, at least in as much as it comes to Jews. The topic of non-Jews is not really relevant to Tanya. The point here is that all Jews, nat- this soul also possesses these qualities as well. Okay? This is going to be critical because if you feel generous and compassionate towards others, you should not assume you've somehow discovered your godly soul, the second soul. That could just be because your animal soul, or the first soul as it's called right now, has a, it values human life, and human life is not limited to your own narrow, selfish being. It extends beyond yourself. And so you recognize that, and you see that, and you feel a sense of, of thriving in the care and concern for others. Right? Setting aside any kind of moral philosophy, just on a kind of natural level. That's the end of chapter one. Okay, chapters two, three, and four, sorry, two, three, four, and five. We're going to group that together. And this is going to be called the godly soul and its world. Okay? And so chapter one is going to be introducing the second soul. Sorry, chapter two, sorry. I am slightly um, out of it. My sleeping schedule has not been normal. Let's put it that way. Um, chapter two is going to, so chapter two is going to be the second soul. There are four points we need to know about the second soul. Number one, it is a piece of God. And I'm going to, again, we're not going to spend a lot of time being very rigorous. The analogy for this is very important. The analogy for the way in which the godly soul is a piece of God is the way in which a son is a piece of his father. Okay. So whatever way we understand that a son is a piece of his father, that we would have to abstract to then have some kind of conceptual understanding of what we mean that the soul is a piece of God. Now, I am a father. I have eight children. It is not the case that I have been cut up into different parts and put in different places. I have remained whole and intact since from the time I was single until now. So whatever it means that I, part of me is now in other people, it's something more interesting and metaphysical than just like the idea of cutting something up and handing everyone a piece, like a piece of pizza or a piece of cake, okay? So if you have a mental image of God handing out little sparks to each person, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful imagery. It's not philosophically correct. Okay, second point. The variation in godly souls is only in how they function, not in their intrinsic godliness. 
And the analogy for this is the way the different parts of a body are all intrinsically part of one person. So while it is true that the feet function differently than the eyes and they function differently than the liver, which functions differently than the brain, right? They are all in essence just different ways that the human being manifests their being. Okay, so is my soul, is my soul, this godly soul identical to your soul? Yes or no? No. No. It is not. What is the one thing though that they have in common? Right, whatever it means that they are godly, one is not more or less godly than the other. But the way that godliness functions in reality is going to be very, very different. Okay, the third point, okay, is that souls are divided into two basic kinds. The brain souls or the head souls and everybody else. And no, not feet, everybody else. And just like in a body, the humanity and functionality of the rest of your body depends on its connection to the brain. So too, the ability for other souls to, to live and thrive in a godly manner depends on their connection to, to the godly souls that are brain souls. Okay? And this is the philosophical basis of the central Hasidic idea of needing a Rebbe. Okay? One of the innovations of the Hasidic movement from the Baal Shem Tov is the centrality of the relationship with the tzaddik, with the Rebbe. The philosophical basis for this idea is that the souls are either souls which are like the brain or the souls are like other souls which need the brain. And so you want to bring that connection between the souls out into your actual lived Judaism. And this is explained as a mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to attach yourself to the righteous. And, and the last thing is that your parents have no effect on your godly soul, but they do affect, I'm talking about in their conception, your ability to access your godly soul. This is, fourth. This is the fourth thing. Because the godly soul comes, is, is something that is coming from God, who your parents are has, it does not indicate whatsoever on the, the kind of godly soul you possess, but your parents do influence your ability to access your godly soul. In other words, some of us are more sensitive to our godly soul and some of us are less sensitive. That baseline is set by the mindset of the parents at the moment of conception. Um, the basic rule is the more hedonistic and selfish the parents are, the harder time the child will have being in touch with their godly soul. The more the parents see themselves as, and this has to be genuine, as transcending their own, their, their own focus on themselves, and placing the focus on God, the more sensitive the person will be to their godly soul. Parenthetically, this is not really relevant for understanding Tanya. This has to be genuine. In other words, pretending to be more holy than one is, um, is counterproductive. Okay, I'm not gonna go into this. Um, when you all get married, you can speak to mentors about the appropriate way to deal with this issue. But it does, from perspective of Jewish mysticism, this idea is in the Zohar already, um, creates some tension between natural human emotional instinctual drives and you know the spiritual um, you know kind of starting point your children have and one wants to find a way of optimizing that in a real way not in a fake way because it won't work if you do it fake okay moving on to chapter three chapter three introduces us to what is called the powers of the godly soul 
which is that the godly soul itself, and this is true about every godly soul. So what we're having here is kind of the generic universal aspects of the godly soul, regardless of the kind. Because we already said they vary. But they all are made up of 10 different powers or 10 different aspects or 10 different abilities. In Hebrew, these are called koichos. Or kachot, depending on how you pronounce it. There are 10. The reason why they are 10 is because God himself functions and reveals himself through 10 spheros. And because the soul is a piece of God, um, there's kind of a continuity there between the 10 spheros and the 10 powers of the soul. Okay, now... The key thing in this chapter is to understand that these, about these powers is not so much how they work, it's not really a guide to how they work, but is identifying what they are and how they interact with each other. Okay, so I, you know, if you would like to learn out how to use your soul powers and you learn chapter three, it is not very helpful. Chapter three is basically just identifying the different powers and showing you like, the way in which they interact with each other. But if you don't know what to do with that information, like you're gonna be stuck. Okay. The first thing that we need to know about these soul powers is um, that these soul powers are divided into two groups, three and seven. And this parallels the division in, in the God's spheros of three and seven. Okay. And the, the, the three are the so-called intellectual faculties or the seichel. And the lower seven are the emotional faculties, or known as the midos. And the key thing to understand is that for the godly soul, the midos, or the emotional faculties, are produced and created by the seichel. In other words, that the intellect generates the emotions such that the emotions are nothing other than a byproduct of the intellect. Seven? There's seven emotional ones. So the seven emotional ones are just a byproduct of the three intellectual ones. Okay, why is this critical? Because if I'm trying to understand, what the whole book is about trying to understand what? Mm -hmm. How to do what? No. Right, right. Meeting my emotional obligations towards Hashem, right? Which then we under that was what the book's about, and then you have this 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 oath, there's being righteous, not being wicked, okay, whatever that is, right, which is an internal thing. Well, if the emotions of the godly soul are generated by the intellect, they're created by the intellect, well then the intellect is going to be the key to all of this. This is where the Chabad Chasidis gets its name, Chabad Chachambin Adasa, three parts of the soul. The intellectual parts. The emotions of the godly soul are emotions that are only directed towards God. And I must emphasize this, only directed towards God. Does your godly soul like doing mitzvahs? No. (laughs) Your godly soul does not like doing mitzvahs. Is your godly soul afraid of sinning? Yes. No, your godly soul is not afraid of sinning. Your godly soul's emotions are only directed towards Hashem. This is very important. So your godly soul feels, for instance, feelings of desire to be with Hashem, fear of rebelling against Hashem, a sense of embarrassment of taking up space in Hashem's reality where Hashem should be the only thing present, a sense of wonder at Hashem's transcendence. 
okay? A sense of vindictiveness on Hashem's, on behalf of Hashem's honor, etc., etc., etc. What are you noticing here? All these emotions are, the object of the emotion is something that directly relates to Hashem's being, okay? That's the only emotions the godly soul is capable of having. With a small caveat that this extends into the love of your fellow Jew for reasons we will get into at some other point. So your, does your godly soul like learning Torah? No. No, it does not. Okay. Now, the next thing we understand is that the intellect produces the emotions in very much the same way that parents produce children, which is that you need the copulation of a father and mother role in order to produce children. Okay? The, the faculty of Chachma serves the role as father, and the faculty of Bina serves as the role of mother. This is very important that we understand that because most people do not understand it. They read chapter three and they don't understand it very quickly because we're doing this overview. Okay? Just like physically procreation works that um, the father provides something which initiates the process and then is removed from the process and what the mother's body does is then actually generates the reality of the child both through conception, gestation, and ultimately birth. Right? But what is produced bears a likeness of to the father. Okay, so these roles are not, you know, you cannot, they're, not, they're not, one can't replace the other. So the role of Chachma is like that of the father, the role of Bina is like that of the mother. What does that mean? Chachma is the godly soul's openness to an awareness of God. And that provide, that openness to the awareness of God provides the initiation um, of the process and means that the produced emotions have a sensitivity to God. And then Bina is the soul's ability to actually grasp and make sense of God, which is what actually does the process of, of coming to terms with God in such a way that produces the emotional result. So the Chachma is the openness to be aware of, aware of God and the Bina is the capacity to genuinely comprehend God. And then when those two things interact properly, the godly soul then has feelings towards God. And then again, the ana- and, and this analogy of like conception, gestation, and birth is actually very, very precise. It's very generalized in Tanya, but that's the model of how it works. Okay? The last thing is that this process is only working in an authentic manner if the power of Das is involved. The power of Das is the, is the ability of the godly soul to connect to God. Okay? I mean here psychologically connect, psychologically attach oneself. What are the symptoms of strong psychological connection or attachment to something? Inability to detach. Right, the inability to detach, which means that if you have strong psychological attachment to something, it constantly occupies your mind. Your mind reverts back to it all the time, right? It takes concentrated effort to move your mind to something else, right? So your godly soul has the ability to relate to God in that way. Now, if you are not going to actively, if you don't feel that power, you're gonna need to actively train it. Just like physically, if your muscles are weak, you have to force them to become stronger. So if your das is weak, that means your mind does not settle naturally on God as the subject of your mind's preoccupation at all times. So what do you have to do then? You have to actively make that, which means a person who treats this entire process as a hobby that they do when they have mood for 
will not genuate, generate any genuine emotions towards God. It has to be done in a manner that your inner life, you are making that centered around God. And, and, if, and, and you, just like in exercising, you put effort to, you, to use your muscles in a certain way and then they become stronger. You put effort to use your mind in this way and then the natural sense of das, the natural sense of attachment of the godly soul grows, which enables this whole process to work. Okay? So, in order to genuine, summarize, in order to genu- generate genuine emotions from the godly soul, you need A, the openness to God of the godly soul, known as Chachma, the ability of the godly soul to genuinely grasp and make sense of God, Bina, and the sense of attachment to God of Das. And these all come to play in the proper intellectual exercises that Chabad Chassidus teaches in other places. Okay? And then you have the emotions, the love, the fear, the dread, the awe, the wonder, the jealousy on God's behalf, not of God, but on God's behalf, etc. Is Das it is. It can function. It can be absent. That's why the altar of actually in the structure of the chapter mentions Chacham Bina playing the parental role and then how the emotions are generated. Only then, at the end, discusses um, Das because it's possible to, to bypass Das and then what you end up is some kind of deluded sense that, you're, that your godly soul has been activated when you're just creating the experience of it without the actual thing there, um, which is not what you're supposed to do. Okay, chapter four introduces what are called the garments of the godly soul. Okay. The idea of garments being way, things that the soul can do that are not really part of the soul itself. And the consequence of them not being part of the soul itself is that you can change them volitionally. So the godly soul can, remember the godly soul is godly, so it can express godliness in ways that are beyond itself or outside of itself. So its own self, again, is the intellectual and emotional things we just described in chapter two, chapter three. Chapter four says the godly soul can engage in other godly type of activities that are kind of externalized and therefore change them at will. And these are the thoughts, speech, and action of the 613 mitzvahs the, the, and their rabbinic extensions and the associated Torah. In other words, the thing we call Judaism. Okay. And the idea is that the soul is able to find fulfillment in its emotional drives in the Judaism. Okay. And this is because the Judaism is the, is the way you actually get to interact with and be with Hashem. Or, God forbid, the opposite. Okay. So, to make this very simple, the godly soul has zero interest in Gemara, but it has an interest in being with God. If in studying Talmud, which is God is somehow present in the Talmud and your soul could be with him, then the soul would be interested in studying Talmud. But again, why? Anything to do with Talmud? No. Okay, so does your godly soul like the parts of Judaism that you like? No. Probably not, because if you were being very honest, most of us like the parts of Judaism that fit with our um, temperament and our nostalgia and our values, right? Some of us are intellectual, we like learning. Some of us not, we like, some of us are more, you know, like, like hanging out and doing fun activities. We like the partying part of Judaism, right? Some of us have strong nostalgic associations, right? But the godly soul, whatever it sees in the, the Judaism, whether it's in 
thought, mitzvahs relating to thought, speech, or action, the only thing that speaks to it is that somehow God is present there. Okay? Good? Okay. The other thing that we need to know about the, these garments is that God's presence in the Judaism infinitely surpasses what the godly soul is able to be aware of. Okay. Because remember, the godly soul's awareness and its emotions are limited to its own capacity to be open to God, to make sense of God, and to feel, right? And so whatever sense of God the godly soul is actually able to connect to in the mitzvah, to sense in the mitzvah, so its sense of emotional fulfillment in the mitzvah, is a limited sense of God. Whereas the actual truth is that God puts the totality of his being into each and every mitzvah, and each and every letter of the Torah, each and every um, halacha and custom. So the, the other thing to understand is that the soul is actually able to be with God in a way that infinitely transcends the soul's experience, not just in this world, but even in the world to come. Because even when the soul is freed from the constraints of the body, its experience of God is always gonna be limited to the limits of its ability to experience. So the second half of this is there's actually infinitely more of Hashem's being in these garments of the soul than the soul actually needs for its own spiritual fulfillment. Okay? Um, let me get to give you a very simple example of this, okay? Um, I have a newborn son. How much does he currently need his mother? On, on, on a psychological level. So now this is a trick question. Because there's how much does he need and how much of her he needs. Those are not the same thing. See, how much he needs. Words, how well would he thrive without her? And the answer is really not. You would have to like, find emergency substitutes and, and they don't really work as well. But you could, you could whatever. You could get by. But, but now what if we change it around and say how much of her does he need at you know, less than you know, three days old? He doesn't even have facial recognition at this point. He has no sense of her as another being who cares for her. That only kicks in a little bit later. Right? It's entirely sensory. Right? Um, but now, how much of my wife is invested in being there for him? In ways that go far beyond what his psyche could even possibly fathom, right? So it's, it's correct to say that, that my wife being there with him is meeting his psychological needs, but she's there with him in a way that far surpasses whatever he could psychologically need. This, with this, when the soul perceives God and feels the associated emotional relationship with God, that is a limited sense of God, by definition, because the soul is a limited creature. But God's presence in any act of Judaism, whether it's a mitzvah that's physical or verbal or mental, is absolute. And so it's important to recognize that you are more with Hashem in an act of Judaism than you could ever be in any experience, including the experiences of the soul in the afterlife. Okay, moving on. Moving on. The chapter 5 focuses on the unique connection to Hashem found in Torah. And this centers on the idea that um, Torah is something that actually fuses with the soul that when the soul studies the Torah with the proper motivation, emphasis on the 
proper motivation, the soul does not simply, is not simply surrounded by or basking in Hashem's presence, but is somehow actually fusing with Hashem. And this has to do with the nature of Torah being an intellectual endeavor. Emphasis on the word. Intellectual. Which means if your Torah study is not intellectually demanding, is this happening? No. Correct. In order for this to be happening, the Torah study has to be done at the highest level of intellectual engagement. But when that is occurring, the soul is fusing with God. Um, and this explains, not to say it's explicitly at times, but it's explained in other places, that why um, somebody who is a human being has actually the ability to make halachic decisions. Because when the rabbis are making halachic decisions, their intellectual being, not the rest of them, has a somehow fused with God. And so it's going to be God and them have kind of become one being, much the way the soul and the body become one. Yes? Is it an objective measure of the highest level of intellectual yes. or your soul's It's an objective measure of your capacity. Of your capacity. Yes. So it's different for every person. Right. right. In other words, one person could know much more Torah and be less unified because they are not... Right. It has, it has to do with the use of the intellectual faculties, not the information. The information is sort of, it's almost reversed. The information is needed so your intellectual faculties are engaged. That's how the altar presents it. The information is almost generated by God, so there's an intellectual engagement. Yes? Um, just back to the chapter four for a second. I, I, I probably can't answer the question right now, but I'm curious if you intentionally use the language that the soul's infinitely more access to spirituality in term and space than it requires for its fulfillment. Correct. Than it requires for its fulfillment. Correct. Wow. Okay. Yes. Yes. That was, okay. Yes. Which means, and the reason I put it this way, if we think about mature relationships, we all recognize that the, the hopefully we all recognize that, that the line between a mature and immature relationship is when the relationship has value beyond your need for fulfillment. In other words, why don't we let children get married? And the simple reason is, um, I'm talking freely from the perspective of Judaism, the reason we don't let children get married is um, we want people in a marriage that their relationship is not based on the fact that the other person is providing them with kind of thing that fulfills them. In other words, that relationship ultimately is about the value of togetherness in and of itself. That's a mature relationship rather than the togetherness serving a need that I have. Okay, so children, we don't expect that from, right? And I, I think that's, an, right, so, so the mature soul prefers to be doing physical mitzvahs, not because they enjoy eating matzah and they like studying Gemara, it doesn't, but because the mature soul knows that it is more together with God than it will ever be even in Gan Eden after it frees itself from the body. An immature soul, on the other hand, would prefer to be where? In Gan Eden. because it gets to experience more and so, it, and, and so you know, there feels like a greater fulfillment. Okay. By the way, everything I'm saying, there's like sources, not just the time, just asserting it, but the rest, because we did the first part, I, I feel like I can just go through the rest and you'll take my word, at least for right now, that there, there are sources for everything. Okay, now the next part, chapters 6, 7, and 8, deal with the reality of the, of the animal soul, or the klipa, from the godly soul's perspective. This is key, Okay. One thing that throws people off when they learn Tanya is they don't realize that the Alter Rebbe is, is, is picking sides, right? He is not giving you the fair and balanced approach. So in discussing the godly soul, he discusses the godly soul. When he moves to discussing the reality of Klippa and the animal soul, 
he does it from the perspective of of the godly soul. And basically, the starting point is, is that the animal soul is set up to be the, the evil twin of the godly soul. So if the godly soul has 10 abilities, then the animal soul, 10 abilities. If the godly soul is set up to be three and seven, intellectual and emotional, then the animal soul is set up to be? If the godly soul is set up to be primarily about the intellectual and then the emotional are the outgrowth, then the animal soul is going to be the inverse because it's all about being the evil twin. Mm. So therefore, in the animal soul, the emotional drives are innate and they are managed and navigated with the intellect. So the more mature your intellect, the more mature way you have of dealing with your emotional drives. The less mature your intellect, the less mature way you have to deal with your emotional drives. But ultimately, who is running the show here? Who is the center? The emotions. Okay? And if the godly soul can express itself in ways beyond its own experience in three garments, then the animal soul can do so as well. And these are all of the actions, all the speech, and all of the thoughts that do not place Hashem at the center. So it's pretty simple, right? Anything you're doing, anything you're saying, and anything you're thinking, which is not objectively placing Hashem at the center, are the garments of the, of the, animal, of the animal soul. Okay? By the way, the reason why it's called an animal is because an animal's primary concern is its own well-being, and the, and the soul's primary concern is its own well-being. Animal's intellect is to further its needs and drives and emotions. To whatever degree the animal has intellect. And the soul is the same thing. Because it's uniquely human soul, so it has uniquely human kinds of needs, such as, you know, n- you know n- needs like purpose and meaning, not just, you know, food. Okay. What do you mean that it doesn't object to the center? So... Torah and mitzvahs are valuable because Hashem is present in them. So they objectively, anything else in principle is not about Hashem. Now we're gonna, it's gonna become a little more complicated. Now, the world of klipa has basically two levels. One is called the three impure klipas, based on the prophet's expression, Prophet Yechezkel, which you read on Shavuos, um, where the first thing he sees as he's entering the spiritual realms is he goes from the outside to the inside, from the klipa to the inner part. First thing he sees um, is a, um, a, a, a storm, uh, uh, sorry, a, a stormy wind, uh, a, a, a violent cloud, and a, and a kind of a shower of fire. And those represent like the, uh, the, the klipa, which for our purposes is going to be called unredeemable. It's called the three impure klipas, basically it is unredeemable, which means there's nothing you can do with it. And this klipa is what enlivens all of the things which are forbidden to eat. If, they're, if their prohibition for eating is inherent and natural, such as pigs, but not like food on Yom Kippur or a kosher animal slaughtering correctly. And also all of the actions that the Torah prohibits. So anytime, any item in the world which is by its nature prohibited by God or any action which God prohibits, whether it's biblical or rabbinic, their energy that's enlivened in them is coming from this irredeemable klipa. 
if the thoughts are forbidden, then those thoughts are being enlivened by that. However, those things which are not explicitly forbidden by God are being enlivened by this other type of klipa called klipa snoga, which literally means the radiant klipa, but for our purposes, it is redeemable. And that's the end of chapter six. Chapter seven then explores the nuances of this klipa, which is redeemable. And basically, to oversimplify tremendously, klipa, which is redeemable, this klipa snoga, it depends on one's motivations, okay? If one is motivated for the sake of God and they do something that is permitted, then that becomes part of the realm of holiness. So if I eat in order to study Torah because I want to be close to Hashem, and I know that only happens when I'm studying Torah, then assuming the food I'm eating is kosher, that act of eating and the life force of the food enter the realm of holiness. Good? Now, on the other hand, if the motivation is to be indulgent, then it enters the realm of the, of the irredeemable klipa temporarily until a person repents and returns to God. Which basically means like this, the example I like to use, is brushing your teeth making your godly soul healthier or weaker, stronger or sicker? Well, the answer is it depends why you're brushing your teeth. If you're brushing your teeth because you genuinely care about being close to God from your godly soul, and you know for some reason in order to do that, you need to brush your teeth, such as you want to be able to make sure that you can eat matzah later in life, right? Or you don't want to make your chavrusa miserable, and that's being motivated by ultimately your love of God, then the act of brushing your teeth has become holy and is actually strengthening your godly soul. Conversely, if you brush your teeth because you really like that minty feeling in your mouth, it is make what it's doing to your godly soul. It is weakening it. It is weakening it. Now, the weakening is temporary because since it depends on your motivation, the minute your mindset changes and you care now primarily about being close to God, then that is undone, okay? Lastly, if you are doing something and your motivation is just practical, then it also, then it stays in this realm of the redeemable klipa, which also weakens your, animal, your godly soul, but not to the same extent. So if you just brush your teeth because you just want to be healthy, it's not as bad as brushing your teeth because you enjoy the minty, minty feel in your mouth. But no app is neutral. I didn't say it's neutral, I just said it doesn't harm the, as much. And doesn't it, it's still it's still harmful to the godly soul, and the harm doesn't require tshuva to replace, re- fix it. Okay, what so it to be just that objectively, it ultimately helps you do more mitzvah. So if you brush your teeth just because you don't want to like lose your teeth later in life, and then ultimately having teeth later in life helps you eat matzah, then retroactively that is holy. Um, but it's retroactive; it's not the ideal way to go about it. It's still it's still more uncomfortable process for the godly soul and leaves a scar on the godly soul. However, if you do something which is a sin, it's a transgression against God's will, um, then since, because that doesn't really depend on your mindset, there's really nothing you can do about that. That contaminates and poisons the godly soul and that is, um, there's nothing you can do to fix that, barring two things. One, Mashiach can come or two, you can the sense of separation from Hashem can prompt such an intense degree of tshuva of returning to Hashem 
that your devotion to Hashem far outstrips what you could have ever achieved without that sense of separation. That is an unrealistic thing to attempt, and therefore, in practical purposes, any time a person engages in a forbidden action or consumes forbidden food, um, the soul, the godly soul, is harmed and poisoned. And remember the rule. If the godly soul is being harmed, the animal soul is being strengthened. And conversely, if the animal, godly soul is being strengthened, the animal soul is being weakened. Okay. Chapter 8 takes this idea and fleshes out some more important details. We're going to focus on three things. One, food. Um, the altar uses the term food, but by implication it applies to physical relations as well. Um, it doesn't say that explicitly, if I remember correctly. Um, is that the, because the, the, the impurity is, the impurity is uh, sorry, the, the klipa is innate, and therefore if a person um, does these things, even unknowingly, the, contem- the, the, the negative effect on the soul still exists. In other words, it may not be a violation of your relationship with Hashem, but it still weakens the soul. So if you eat non-kosher food, thinking it was kosher, and you were perfectly allowed to rely on that food as being kosher, God is not angry with you. There is no need to repair the relationship with God. Your soul is still poisoned and there's nothing you can do about it. It's like, um, you know, drinking bleach, right? It doesn't matter why you drank it. It's bad for you, right? Now, when I say there's nothing you do, I'm talking about in the normal context. There's always the chuva we spoke about, Mashiach can come, but those are not normal types of experiences that people have. The next point is that the way in which you engage the klipa is the part of your soul that gets contaminated, which means if you contaminate your soul through a physical thing like eating, it's going to have a different effect if you contaminate your soul with something that is entirely mental, like just idle chatter, which is going to be different than if you contaminate your soul by engaging in concepts and ideas. If a person engages in concepts and ideas which are not Torah, which part of the soul are they contaminating? The mind. mind. And we said the mind was the key to everything. So what is the worst thing you can do for your godly soul? No. Learn concepts and ideas ideas that aren't Torah. Mm -hmm. Because which part of the soul are you contaminating? Ultimately, right, the, the access point to everything else. This explains the tremendous um, nervousness that Hasidim have around secular knowledge, even when it is permitted, because still, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, it's going to contaminate the soul, and which part of the soul is it going to contaminate? The part that gives you access to God, right? Does that mean it's prohibited to study secular studies? No. But it's something that uh, someone who studies Tanya would take with a tremendous amount of caution. Um, now, how cautious is too cautious? Everybody's life path is different, right? It'd be nice to be able to ask a, someone with prophetic knowledge what's the appropriate thing here, right? You don't always get that opportunity. Okay, and that's kind of giving you all of the... That's, that's all the piece of information we need to know. Now, you'll notice that everything kind of centers around this centrality of God, Right? Like everything was bidding terms in terms of God or the soul's experience of God or the soul's connection to God or how something interacts with that, right? There's no value outside of this, right? 
Um, it's very important. If you study the first eight chapters of Tanya, the only thing that should come up being valuable is God, and by extension, the soul's connection with God, and by extension, the soul's awareness of God, and by extension, that the things that the soul can do to be with God, and the things that are negative or positive outside of that are only in terms of the way they play a role on that. So it's, it's kind of very monotheistic, right? Only worshiping one thing, only focusing on one thing. Okay. Questions? I mean, that's very fast for eight chapters of Tanya, right? Intense. What? Intense. Okay. You can also understand why you need a certain amount of maturity with for Tanya. Mm-hmm. Because if, so I, I think it's very, I want to stop and make like a practical comment. This, Tanya is not describing our innate experience of reality. That's why there are eight chapters. He has redefined everything. He's redefined what it means to be you. He's redefined your psyche in terms of a very specific psychological process, right? Coming to an awareness and emotional relationship with God through the faculties of the godly soul, right? The rest of, it's very important. Like I get annoyed. People are like, oh, everything in psychology you can find in time. This is not true. Like he took out one part of our psyche that was relevant, right? Which is the fact that our godly soul enables us to have this kind of awareness that creates certain kinds of emotions that the godly soul has. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of our cycle is just kind of set up in opposition to that, mm-hmm. right? As, I, as, as like something we have to deal with because it works, it, it kind of mirrors that cognitive emotional processes, but kind of reverted, inverted. And like not really engaging that in any kind of complex or sophisticated way. It's certainly not dealing with any kind of mental illnesses. Um, and then all of the rest of human life and endeavors is basically put into the category of either it's part of Judaism, which God is present innately, and that makes it valuable, or it's something God prohibits and therefore is irredeemable and should be avoided at all costs. And there's really no, no practical way of undoing the damage, even if, it's not a, even if it's not a transgression in terms of your choice, but it still has that negativity. And then there's the rest of human life, which basically only has value in as much as it enhances the godly soul and everything gets kind of negative value because it generally goes against that and there's just different pathways of how to mitigate that. It is, a, it, it is shading everything in, in reality with this God-colored pencil. Um, and again, a, a big Difficulty in Tanya is not just learning the technical terms and the nuances and all that, but actually just accepting this other framing and then trying to maybe, like, not just accept it in the abstract, but actually try to live your life in accordance with it. Okay, moving on. Now, so we have a godly soul, we have an animal soul, right? They're clearly, so chapter nine says, okay, they, they, they occupy the same body. And um, they are not interested in compromising with each other. They both seek out absolute um, control and sovereignty, which are not synonyms, by the way, over the totality of the person's existence. And so there really is no opportunity here for compromise. Um, It is also important to note that the godly soul primarily manifests itself in the mind whereas the animal soul primarily most itself in the heart. So as a general rule, things which start from an emotional place should be assumed to be coming from, and things which start in a place of kind of mature awareness should generally be assumed. Now, that's a general assumption. We obviously realize a person's education, previous life experience can change all of that and requires a tremendous amount of self-awareness to pay attention to that. 
Um, the other point in chapter nine is that on some very deep level, the godly soul, sorry, the animal soul is really an agent of God to force the godly soul to work harder. This is based on an analogy in the Zohar that there was a king who wanted to test his son's competence to be a master over himself before he became king and sent a prostitute to tempt him. That the prostitute genuinely doesn't want to succeed because she's loyal to the king, but she also attempts to seduce the prince because she's loyal to the king. And that's really, there's a deeper level in which the animal soul really is doing all this for God's sake. Um, Which you find a similar idea that the Talmud says that Satan really has God's, um, doing everything for the sake of heaven, really doing it for God's sake, deep down inside. Okay. Now, chapter 10, now that we've learned all of that, chapter 10 tells us about Tzadikim. Now we learned there's a war. And the Tzadik is basically when the godly soul wins the war. If the godly soul wins the war, there are two possibilities. Possibility number one is that the animal soul has been completely subjugated. Okay? And what does someone who's been completely subjugated do? They serve the winner. That's right. So that would mean the animal soul only does things that are in the service of the godly soul. So such a person would never feel temptation because any sort of animal soul psychological powers or manifestations would only be in the service of the godly soul. So your life would very much look like, you know, the first day chapters of Tanya without the, without the making mistakes part. You would experience life for kind of from that perspective. You would never want to sin. You would never be tempted to do something wrong, etc. The other possibility, the deeper possibility is that the animal soul is actually transformed. We're not going to go into the mechanics of this, but if the godly soul achieves a sufficient level of love of God, it's actually able to transform the animal soul. So it's no longer subjugated, it's become an ally. And that gets us our, our two kinds of tzaddikim. The incomplete tzaddik, in other words, that the tzaddik's love has not reached this highest pinnacle, the, is still a tzaddik virale, the evil is still within, it's just completely subjugated. But the tzaddik who's reached this highest pinnacle of love for Hashem, there's the godly soul has reached its full maximal potential. A tzaddik gum or a complete tzaddik is a tzaddik v'tayvli, that there's no evil within them at all. The animal soul has been transformed. And now we move on to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we have the inverse, which is what happens if the animal soul wins? What? This is called the Russia. And if the animal soul wins but there is still place for the godly soul to express itself just in a subjugated role. We call that the incomplete Russia, who is also a Russia who has good. The upper extreme of this is a person who is completely devout Jew and only rarely sins in the most minor of ways and then does tshuva afterwards. But the fact that sin is the occasional um, choice that they make does indicate as a general rule which soul is the one dominating their psyche, the animal soul. The lowest end of this is a person who is a constant sinner in the most heinous ways without ever doing tshuva, but at least on some level still feels bad about it. That bad feeling is coming from the godly soul. So what do these two people have in common? It's kind of a range for most of us. Godly soul has some manifestation, but it's ultimately subject to the dictates of the animal soul. The completely wicked person 
is someone who the animal soul has succeeded in banishing the godly soul from having any manifestation because the godly soul's godly cannot be transformed, but it can be banished. And therefore there's nothing left but evil in such a person. And that's where you get your unrepentant heretics from. Good? But those are few. Few and far between. Now I would like to point out, um, this is really not really for the overview, but I think it's important to know, there in, in certain areas of life, we all experience a, these types of things. So Tanya's overtly talking about the kind of the, the holistic person, but there are areas in which we are one or the other. Areas, I'm not talking times. To change in time is actually very difficult. But for instance, um, any sin that you have done repeatedly and have made peace with and don't really feel bad about doing anymore, that, in, regarding that sin, you have banished the godly soul from your life and you are, you are a um, completely wicked person in that arena. And conversely, something that you are in no way tempted to on any level because, not like I'm not tempted to eat shrimp because I didn't grow up eating it, but because it so, so deeply runs against your sense of attachment to Hashem, that you're not tempted on, on any level at all, let's say your average Jew and converting to Christianity, that would be something which you could be considered to be a tzaddik. Okay? But overtly the time is talking about the person as a holistic being. Okay. And last, you get the Benini. And that's chapter 12. And a Benini, well, we've run out of possibilities, right? Because the tzaddik is where the godless soul wins, the rush is where the animal soul wins, so what is the Benini? The Benini is what we have, what we, what we call in physics, an un, a, 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 we have a kind of a stable equilibrium. Nobody has won, nobody has lost, and in that situation, everybody plays to their strengths. And who is objectively stronger? The godly soul. The godly soul is objectively stronger in certain areas, and the animal soul is objectively stronger in other areas. The godly soul is objectively stronger in the mind, and the animal soul is objectively stronger in the, in the emotions. But here's the thing. Being that human beings are cognitive creatures, who has the advantage here? The godly soul. So which means this person's mind and the vast majority of their emotions in terms of how they regulate their emotions and consequently all of their behavior are in line with which soul? The godly soul. But they still have emotional experiences that are coming from the animal soul. And that would be a bainani in a nutshell. Good? Okay. Now, we don't have time. We're going to continue this tomorrow. But then he starts fleshing out the bainani already in chapter 12 and then really dedicates the rest of the chapters to understanding the bainani and then tying that back into answering the question. But the key to answering the question is that being a bainani is something that we can achieve. So we're going to continue that tomorrow. Okay. Um, I think it should be pretty simple from what we've overviewed that the Alkarib is not trying to give you an easy way to deal with things, right? Mm -hmm. okay. He is trying to give you a way that is thorough and works. That's why he calls it the long, short way. Okay. It works, but, but you have to really do it. 